Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here today recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. If you're not on Patreon, you probably don't know this, but I do have a little bit of a cold. So if I sound a little off today, that would be why. We were kind of mean last week with the chessboard killer. Yuck. So today we have a slightly less traumatizing story for you guys. I mean, it is still lost in the woods, so there will be some disturbing things, but there will be less. So enjoy. Today we are bringing you the story of Julianne Kopke. And this is a crazy story. On Christmas Eve of 1971, Julianne and her mother Maria arrived at the airport to catch their flight, leaving Lima and bound for Pucalpa. The airport was in chaos. Several flights had been canceled the day before, and now there were more passengers than there were flights available. Among the passengers trying to get a seat on their flight was Warner Herzog, a filmmaker who was working on a film called Wrath of God, and he was furious that him and his crew could not get seats on the flight. Julian also talked to some boys her age that spoke American English, and they were actually able to get seats on the flight. The trio actually joked about the name of the plane, which was Mateo Pumacawa, who was a national hero that had been quartered by the Spanish while fighting for Peru's independence. And they had been joking around saying, let's hope our plane isn't quartered too. The flight was headed for Pilcalpa. This is a port city along the Useli River. Their final destination was the Patagonia Research Station in the Amazon. Now, Julian had lived there with her mom, Maria, and her father, Hans, for three years on and off. So her parents are actually zoologists, and they're doing research at this biological station in the Amazon, which I think just sounds like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it does. So when she was told as a young teenager that she was going to be moving to the Amazon, she was actually really upset about it. And then she was like, actually, she was like, as soon as she got there, she said it felt like home and she loved it. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, the 86-passenger Lockheed L-188A Electra turboprop flight was to take less than an hour. That was a mouthful. One thing to note about this plane is that by 1971, this kind of plane, which is meant for desert flight, had been taken out of service by the U.S. government years before. So the U.S. government was like, we are not using this kind of plane anymore. And something about it being a desert plane, it didn't handle turbulence very well. The flight actually leaves seven hours late because of all of the chaos and delays at the airport. With the crew, there were 92 souls aboard the plane. Julian and her mother were in the very last row, which was row 19, and Julian sat in seat F, which was the window seat which is where Maddie always makes me sit. Hey, Mom, you want to move into the window seat? And you're like, yeah, sure. And I was like, well, I wasn't going to give you an option even if you were going to say no. So. I have actually ridden on a smaller plane like this, and they can be a lot more turbulent yeah, and a lot more so scary. so much louder inside it of is, those Yeah, it's like almost windy inside, or at least mine was. 
So her mom was in the middle seat and a thick-set man was in the aisle and he immediately fell asleep upon sitting down. So 30 minutes into the flight, they received a sandwich and a drink and so far everything has been fine. Yeah, because it said it was under an hour. Yep. Now at this point, they start heading into dark clouds and the plane starts to experience some turbulence and Julian could also hear thunder. Which, I don't know if you know this, but with thunder, there's usually lightning. And lightning is not good for planes. Now, Maria was sitting next to her daughter, and her anxiety was evident. But she said to her daughter, hopefully this goes all right. And Julian, at this point, is very calm. She's not a nervous flyer. She's flown lots of times. But her mom is a very nervous flyer. She does not like flying. So she knows that her mom is very stressed out. But that does not alarm her because... Planes don't scare her at this point. She said as they flew into the storm, it went from daylight to night instantly out the window. In her book, When I Fell from the Sky, very, very good book, by the way. I did read it. Julian says that the pilot flew straight into the cauldron of hell and that an invisible power began to shake the airplane as if it were a plaything. Jesus. She witnessed the lightning strike the right wing of the plane And the plane immediately went into a nosedive. Maria said to her daughter, that's the end. Now it's all over. Can you imagine? Your mother saying that to you? Yeah. Like, can you imagine sitting next to me on a plane? And I'm like, well, that's the end. It's all over now. While passengers are screaming and crying, there are literally luggage and presents falling from the compartments above them. Because remember, it's Christmas Eve. So people are traveling to their loved ones for Christmas. So there's like actual presents falling on people. I already I already kind of don't like flying. This does not help though. So Maria and Julian hold hands in silence. The plane broke apart and Julian recalls that she was separated from the rest of the passengers. And she said in an interview, the next thing I knew, I was no longer inside the cabin. I was outside in the open air. Yeah, and Werner Herzog wrote a book about her story. It's called uh, Voyages of Hell or something like that. I didn't read it, but one thing that he did say in his book was she did not leave the airplane. The airplane left her. She recalls the three-seat bench she was strapped into spinning as it hurled toward the jungle canopy. From above, the treetops resembled heads of broccoli. It was around this time that she blacked out. When she regained consciousness, she was alone. It was Christmas morning, and she was under the plane seat. Her mom's seat is now empty, and there is no sign of the man who sat on the other side of her either. She is soaked and covered in mud. So at this point, you guys, she has fallen more than 10,000 feet from the sky. That's how far up they were when the plane broke apart. Jesus. That's almost two miles. We skydived from 10,000 feet. Yep. So imagine jumping out of that plane and just free falling from that distance. I actually watched a skydiving horror thing where this chick, they jumped out of the the plane and got stuck to the bottom of the plane and they're confused and hanging upside down and they're trying to figure out what went wrong 
because it's only the pilot in the plane because they were the last ones that jumped out. And he notices that her her gear got caught on the landing gear of the plane as they jumped out. So they're like stuck upside down attached to the plane. He takes out a knife and starts cutting because after like seven minutes of hanging upside down, he realizes he can't get them unstuck and that he's going to have to cut it. And he finally cuts it. They finally break loose and they finally like, so they lived. It didn't ruin her gear? He figured out, he like figured out which one he could cut without. God, that would be terrible. Making her fall out. She didn't look super supported when they were dangling. Falling? Yeah. She looked like a little misplaced, but she was still. Because were they, was it a, a tandem, I'm assuming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so terrifying. Now, something was definitely wrong. She couldn't stand up. She couldn't see straight. She didn't feel good. She said that she lay there curled up like an embryo. At points, she would yell for her mother, but all she heard were the sounds of the forest in return. And in her book, she describes her first sight of the jungle like a painting. She says that the jungle with the light coming in makes everything glow in different shades of green. So she has a broken collarbone and she can feel the broken bones, but they're not actually puncturing the skin. Mm-hmm. She has a ruptured ligament in her left knee, a sprained knee. One eye was swollen shut and the other one, only a slit was available to see through. She had gashes on her right shoulder and her left calf. She was missing her eyeglasses. Right, and she is very nearsighted, so... Being able to see in the jungle is going to be difficult for her. And she only has one sandal on. She, which how her sandal stayed on her when she fell 10,000 feet doesn't make any sense. But onward, um, she was wearing a sleeveless mini dress. Why are you on a plane in a sleeveless mini dress? I guess it was a short flight. Yeah, and it's like, it's like warm. It's like not cold there. Yeah. So the zipper of her dress was splitting. Like the back of it, her zipper had split open a little bit. So her dress isn't even like, well, it's on, but it's but not, not secure. Like, yeah. yeah. Her watch was still ticking quietly on her wrist. Which is kind of amazing that the watch survived that yeah. too. When she did get up, she began to stumble through the jungle. She was in shock and believed that she had a concussion. She had a small bag of sweets that she'd found on the site where she crashed, but no other food. Yeah, so she found like a little bag of candy that somebody had with them on the plane. And that was the only thing around her that she could find. And she did spend a lot of time kind of wandering around her immediate area because she was really scared to leave where the bench was because she knew how easy it would be for her to get lost, especially without being able to see very well. What she didn't know at the time is that the largest search in the history of the Peruvian air travel had already begun. The plane had sent their last transmission near Oyan before disappearing from the sky. Loved ones, friends, family, people are showing up at the airport looking for information about what happened. So it's just become like this crazy, like this plane just disappears and nobody knows where it's at. The hope is that the plane made an emergency landing, but they would soon learn that this was not the case. It's funny, too, a local woodcutter who was near the site of the crash told searchers once they were out that he had heard a crash or explosion, but they did not believe him. (laughs) 
crazy. And apparently that's because there were a lot of misleading reports from locals coming in. There had also been some sort of, um, I think they said like avalanche stuff happening from the mm. storm. And so that was creating noise that was not related yeah. to the plane crash. While wandering, she hears the buzz of a plane overhead, but the canopy is so thick that she's not seen. Yeah, and we've had this. We had this in the Geraldine case mm-hmm. where she could hear the plane searching for her, but was in too thick of an area for them to see her. That must be so frustrating. So as she made her way through the jungle, she said that she didn't feel fear, but a boundless feeling of abandonment. She had no idea that she was only 30 miles from the research station. Yeah, that she had been flying to go to. So she hears water and decides that she's going to go and follow the water. And this was something that her father had told her and had kind of stuck with her a little bit. Like if you are lost in the jungle, you find water, you follow that water to bigger water to bigger water to people, basically. Mm -hmm. The Amazon is full of poisonous snakes, spiders, stingless bees, whatever that is. I don't like it. Mosquitoes, riverbed stingrays. And also being December, there was no fruit to eat, no dry wood to build a fire. It was very humid during the day and very cold at night. So this is what she's going to be dealing with in the jungle. So she follows this like stream of water for the rest of the day. And then that night she actually sleeps very well, probably because she has a concussion, probably because she's exhausted. I mean, I can't even imagine, but this would turn out to be her last good night's sleep. Meanwhile, her father is told of the Lanza plane crash. Lanza is the type of the, the company of the plane And he is sure that his wife and daughter would not be on a Lanza flight because he had told his wife never to fly with them and insisted that she would never have gotten on one of their planes. Although the following day, he would be proven wrong when a list of the passengers was read over the radio and he heard the names of his wife and daughter on the list. Yikes. Such a helpless feeling. So day two, December 26th, she continues to follow the same stream, which is not a straight line. And it costs her a lot of time and energy to stay with it without being able to see very far. But she doesn't dare leave it because she doesn't know what else to do. So she can't take any shortcuts, right? Like if you can see really well, you might be able to see, okay, well, the river is going to wind this way and that way, and you might just be able to cut across. Well, she can't do that. She has to follow she can't it. See. Exact. Yeah. So it probably does cost her a lot of time. She also spends the following day walking along the stream. And on day four, December 28, she begins to fear that she's going to starve to death because this is the day that she eats the last candy that she has. Now, She drinks water from the stream, and it is brown and murky, but she has no other option, and she knows that without food, she has to keep drinking water. Her watch also stops on this day. So she hears the sound of a landing king vulture, and this frightens her because she knows that they are only attracted to large carnage. 
So at this point, she's thinking that maybe she's getting closer to the rest of the victims from the plane. And what she comes across is a row of seats, just like the one that she had been on. All three seats are occupied. If you don't want to hear icky stuff, go ahead and skip forward like 30 seconds. Two are occupied by men and one is occupied by a woman. They had landed head first with such force that their heads were buried three feet into the ground and their legs were sticking straight up in the air. Now, this is the first time that she's ever seen a dead body and she was initially paralyzed. She didn't want to touch them, but she had to make sure that the woman wasn't her mother, which she does later admit she knows isn't logical because her mother was on her seat and wouldn't have been on this one. Yeah. But at the time, that's all she can think about. And she actually uses a stick to turn the woman's feet towards her and sees that she has toenail polish on and her mother never wears polish. So she realizes that it's not her and feels relieved But she would say that later she felt guilty for this thought. Now, at this point, her days start to run together. And it's on day five or six that she hears a hotsin call, which is a bird that she is very familiar with. And it usually nests near large sections of the river. So she hastens her pace, thinking that she must be getting close to the river. And when she reaches the outlet, it is blocked by heavy debris, and she is forced to go around the blockage, which costs her hours. She can also hear the planes flying overhead. I imagine she's feeling a little panicky at this point, you know? She knows she's close to the river. She knows she's close to opening. She can hear the planes, but she can't get through in this spot. When she finally makes it through the opening to the river, she sees no people, and to her dismay, This portion of the river is completely deserted. There are no people here at all. She realizes that the river would be really hard to navigate with a boat, so her chances of finding anyone here is just none. Because I think in her mind she thought she would magically get to the river and there would just be people there. Yeah. But that is not the case. She is unencumbered by the forest canopy for the first time, So when she hears a plane and looks up and can actually see it, she starts waving and yelling, but the plane does not see her and flies away. So she heads further downriver, wading in the water, using a stick to vet out any poisonous stingray that may lie in the mud near the bank. And remember, she only has one shoe. Yeah. So her progress is very difficult with logs and branches hampering her efforts, and she decides to just swim in the middle of the river. At least there she'll only have piranhas to deal with. Oh my god, I can't. So that night she tries to sleep, but the mosquitoes seem to be attempting to eat her alive. I can only imagine what the mosquitoes are like out here. Well, and now she's near the river. There's probably more mosquitoes. I... Nightmare. This would be a nightmare. Yeah, and bugs are trying to climb in her nose, and I assume all her other orifices, like her ears and everything at this time. Oh my god. While she's trying to sleep. And it also rains through the night. (laughs) Awful. And I'm telling you, if I ever got lost, it would be that. It would be being cold and the bugs. Now, I didn't really think about the bugs before. Being cold and being eaten alive. That would just kill me. 
Also, mosquito bites, like, that's one of the things that people have a really hard time with on, like, shows like Survivor and shows like Naked and Afraid and stuff like that. Like, the bug bites damage your, like, mental. Oh, yeah. Like, it's hard. Now, by day eight or nine, she's not really sure at this point, everything is getting harder. Her wounds become infected and she can see maggots wiggling out of the wound on her shoulder. So, like, she kind of has to turn like this with her head, like, over her shoulder. You guys can't see me. Maddie can, though. Mm -hmm. And the wound on the back of her shoulder, she can see maggots, like, wiggling out of it. Oh, my God. That's disgusting. She actually tries to get these maggots out of her shoulder. She takes a ring that she has on and she bends it to kind of be like tweezers. But whenever she gets near them, they disappear back into her flesh. She actually worries that her arm will become infected and may have to be amputated. Dear God, dear God, dear God. So while trying to sleep that night, she hears hissing and pawing near her and knows that it is something large. She actually thinks it might be a mahas, which is a large rodent about the size of a dog. What? Don't worry. I'm I'm already Googling it. Thank you. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, my God. Oh, no. No. It's, like, literally like a it, giant rat. Okay, so it looks like it has the body of um, one of those, like, a... Uh, Okay, the body is really cute, but the head looks like a giant rat. It's kind of cute. No. Nope. 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 nope Look nope. at it. Nope. No, it just I, thank you. No, nope, I don't want that. Oh, come on. Look at it. No. No, it looks like a giant, like, hamster rat combination. Yeah, I'm going to say no. I don't like that. In her book, though, she seems very unconcerned about this giant rodent. The next morning, she has a terrible pain on her back and realizes that she is sunburnt. And this sunburn, which she will later learn is a second-degree burn, is peeling and bleeding. My God. So she allows herself to float downriver and struggles to avoid logs and debris. Yeah, because she doesn't really even have the energy to, like, move around stuff. She kind of just waits for herself to run into them at this point. Yeah. She encounters a crocodile while she's trying to rest on a sandbar and is forced back into the water. Damn. Crocodiles are scary. hmm So she tries to catch a frog with the intent of eating one, but she's too weak. Frogs are fast. <laughs> yeah, they are. So January 2nd, the search is officially abandoned and only family and friends remain on the ground searching. This is kind of about the time. And they have found nothing of the plane at this point. Nothing. Hmm. And part of that is just the canopy is too... So thick. It's so thick. On day 10, standing is near impossible for her at this point. And she's been tricked many times by her eyes, thinking that she sees, like, the roof line of a house or different things... So either she's hallucinating or she's just, like, seeing things in the shapes Mm -hmm. because she doesn't have her glasses on. And on this day, she sees a large boat. And she actually has to go all the way to the boat and touch it before she thinks it's real because she thinks she's hallucinating. Oh, my God. 
Near this boat, she sees a small path into the jungle, and when she follows it, she finds a small hut with a palm leaf roof, an outboard motor, and a liter of gasoline. And it takes her such a long time to get the cap off of the gasoline, but once she does, she pours it onto her open wounds. And she does this because she wants to get the maggots out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fuck. Now, at first, they retreat further into her skin, but eventually they do reappear. She said in her book that the maggots protruded like asparagus tips from her skin. I don't know why, but the visual of that just makes me itch. She said the pain was so intense that she could hardly stand it. She pulled about 30 maggots out before giving up and falling asleep. Now, at this point, no, there's no people there. This is an abandoned hut. There's nobody there. So she finds that she can't actually sleep in the hut because the ground is too uncomfortable. And she actually like crawls back towards the river and kind of sleeps on a bank there. She starts thinking that maybe she should take the boat down the river, but she worries that the owner might be somewhere in the forest and would become stranded if she took it. She also doubts that with her strength, she would be able to navigate the boat at this point, too. Yeah. So day 11. Um, by midday, there's still no sign of anyone, and it starts to pour, and she drags herself into the shelter. And once it stops raining, she knows that she must keep moving, but is unable to force herself up. She knows it could be weeks before anyone returns to the camp. She decides she must rest for one more day and plans to head back out tomorrow. She knows she's starving, but she doesn't feel any pain because 11 days, you're I was going to say, and she said that she never really felt any pain from any of her injuries or being hungry or anything like while she was going. And that I think is just survival mode. Like your body goes into survival mode and it just turns everything Mm -hmm. else off. So she tried to catch frogs, but no luck. So I assume she's just like laying there, just like trying to rest. Trying not to die. Yeah. So when twilight comes, she hears voices and the forest workers came into the camp. They were alarmed to find her there and recoiled at the look of her. Because I mean, she's covered in gasoline at this point. She. Well, not only that, but I heard that she, her, she didn't have any white left on her eyes they were all red like her blood vessels had all like popped in her eyes well, from falling that far yeah pro- i mean probably or from everything else that she's been through so yeah. she probably looks pretty terrifying yeah so she tells them that she came from the crashed plane and that her name is julian they feed her or try to and she's unable to keep anything down So the three men are Don, Carlos, and Nestor, and I would give their last names, but I really don't want to mispronounce them. And they remove the rest of her maggots from her wounds. Gross. So she asks them if all the other passengers have been rescued already. And they tell her no, that they haven't even found the plane yet, and not one survivor has been found. They say that it is as though the jungle has closed its fists around the plane, and it's gone. 
They also tell her that it's a miracle that they even came to the shelter that night. They rarely come to check on the boat, and when the rain started, they almost abandoned their task completely. Can you imagine? Like, they almost didn't go. Crazy. Like, the rain started. That was some fate type of stuff. That was some fate. That was, like, something told them to keep going and not. Well, and they said it was one of them. So, like, the rain started, and two of them were like, oh, let's just not go. And he was like, no, let's just go. Let's just get it done. Let's go check on everything, you know. Crazy. It's It's crazy. Now, the group decides that it's safer to spend the night and head out in the morning. They give her their only mosquito net, but sleep does not come easy for her. So they set out before it's even light out, but Julian actually struggles to even walk at this point, and one of them has to pick her up and carry her to the boat, where he lays her down and covers her. Now, when she wakes up, she learns that the river is called Rio Shibonia and is completely uninhabited. Right, so... Her hope for finding people along the water was so slim. Right. So after reaching a village, she's flown to Unachika, where she receives more medical attention and is asked what she would like to eat. She immediately requests a chicken sandwich and is thrilled when they provide one. Can you imagine flying again after this? No. She got on a plane. No. She was probably too tired, honestly, to even, like, be scared. Yeah. Now, Julian's survival becomes an instant sensation. Families who have given up hope that their loved ones will return now believe that they could still be out there. She tells of the route that she took, and a pilot named Robert Winnegar boards his plane and follows her route back. And by 10 a.m., he spots the first wreckage found of the Lanza plane. But it is impossible to land here. Like, can you, they, all this time, they haven't been able to find it. Like, and now that they know where she came from, they're able to immediately trace back and go find it. So she is then reunited with her father and he can barely talk, but he says, how are you doing? And she says, good. And then they just held each other. Mm. So a pilot named Clyde Peters decides that he's going to parachute down on the site and cut a landing area so that searchers can come in because nobody can get here. Good at idea. This time. So, in his fall, he loses the power saw attached to his leg and injures himself. Then he goes missing and isn't found for three days. Oh my gosh. Good. Just adding people to the list. So, military on foot has no more luck getting into the wreckage. It takes them two days to get in by foot, which is only 12 miles. Right. From where they start, yeah. Yep. So, the leader actually falls and injures himself, making their progress even slower. Oh, my gosh. And then on January 6th, civilians are lowered down by rope, equipped with power saws, and they run into the military group who has now made their way to the site, and they decide to work together. Mm-hmm. On January 7, they reach the wreckage for the first time. They find the Lanza Gallery, the intact tail, and the destroyed luggage compartment. Crazy fact, a seaplane actually crashes on the same day in the nearby Sierra Mountains and has never been found. That's crazy. What is going on? Some Bermuda Triangle. Do you know there are lots of triangles out there yeah. like that? There are a ton. Mm-hmm. Where so that. many hundreds of planes have crashed in these areas and no one knows why. 
Okay. So on January 8th, they find the first 20 corpses. Mm-hmm. And they are not in good shape. And I'm going to spare the details. But just so you know, the coroner does become ill and has to leave the site. So if that tells you anything about... Uh. So the pilot and a 14-year-old girl are the first to be identified. The pilot, by where he sat, he had to be cut out of the cockpit. The girl was identified by her father who was there searching and he was able to identify her by the jewelry she wore since it had been a gift from him. And he insisted on carrying his daughter out himself. Mm. Dear God. I can't. Her father struggles and questions why they had to take that flight. To which Julian feels the weight of this guilt because she knows that they only took that flight because she insisted on sticking around for her graduation party, and it was the only flight available. Uh, But she said that her and her dad never really talked about any of this, like anything that was going on. They kind of just dealt silently with all of it. On January 12th, they found her mother's body. Her father actually went to identify it, but he said he wasn't sure at first since her head was missing. He said it was her feet that he recognized because her second toes were longer than her big toes and he had often teased her about this. He asked Julianne if she remembered what shoes her mother had been wearing and when she described them, he shook his head and said those were the shoes that were with the body that he identified. So one puzzling thing is that she was in such good shape and this made them believe that she couldn't have been dead for more than a few days. So the belief is that she actually survived the crash, but was too injured to actually move. Yeah. Which would make sense since Julian survived where she fell. Now, I will say this. Her father, to this day or to the day he died, believed that maybe it wasn't his wife. He believed that... There was some sort of cover-up going on or something going on because there was a lot of discrepancies as far as when the body was sent to have an autopsy. Like things, weird things happened during that process. And so he he struggled a lot to come to terms with it. Mm. And Julian did believe that it was her mother. The black box was located, and when the recording was reviewed, the pilots were talking about Christmas celebrations and about their children and their families. And they seemed very surprised about the storm when they ran into it. So later, Julian would consider why she was the one who had survived. So there are a couple things that her and Werner considered that may have contributed to her being the only survivor. Yeah, so if you remember, Warner was the movie producer that had been trying to get on the flight. And he actually comes back to her later on when she's an adult. And he makes a documentary about her story. Mm. So they actually talk a lot about what happened and different theories and things like that. So the strong updrafts were one of them. This may have slowed her descent. And... The searchers had found one well-preserved seat bench in the jungle, and it was under a tangle of Lena's, which could have cushioned her fall. 
Right. So the type of tree that was surrounding this area is what they're thinking. If it was actually her seat. Yeah. They think it was, though. She was told by doctors that her injuries should have made it medically impossible for her to have been able to walk through the jungle for 11 days, specifically the ligament damage that she had. Mm. I'm telling you, survival mode. Okay, so during her journey through the jungle, she promised herself that if she survived, that she would devote her life to a meaningful cause that served nature and humanity. Julian moved to Germany and earned her PhD in biology and became an eminent zoologist. But she continued to feel the draw of the jungle. So in 1981, she spends 18 months living in the station where her travels that day in 1971 should have taken her. She spent her time there researching her graduate thesis on diurnal butterflies and her doctoral dissertation on bats. Bats and butterflies? I know, right? And diurnal means that they fly during the daytime, by the way. Yeah. So at night. There are different kinds of butterflies and moths. (laughs) In case you didn't know. So she lives in Munich, where she is a retired deputy director of the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology. Crazy. Starting in the 70s, Julian and her father would lobby the government to protect the jungle from civilization. And in 2011, Patagonia was declared a private conservation area. The property starting at 445 acres would be expanded to four thousand acres yeah i think it's amazing that she has devoted her life because she's done even more work since then too where her and her father worked really hard to save as much as they could they were zoologists they were there in the jungle before yeah and people ask her too like how how she can still love the jungle how can she look at it in that way and she actually says that the jungle caught me and saved me, and it was not its fault that I landed there. Fair enough. Now, we talked about Werner Herzog. So he wrote the book called Voyage into Hell, and I think they made a documentary out of it too, but I don't know if it was based on his book or just her story. But it's crazy because he actually contacted her and said that they might have even crossed past the day of the flight because he was there. Which is just crazy. But she did say in her book a lot that there was so much misinformation about her out there and about what happened. Like people painted her in a crazy light. Like there was this big huge thing about her eating cake. What? Yeah, there were people that said that when she landed, she had a cake or she found a cake or something like that. And she lived off of cake in the jungle. Like I actually read that somewhere that she survived on cake. In the jungle. Which, she found a baggie of candy, dog. Right. But she said that over and over again, the press would misreport what was said or what actually happened. That for a long time, until Werner Herzog came along, mm-hmm. she wouldn't talk to the press. She did like some initial talking to them, and things got so skewed that she was like, nope, I'm out. And the press actually. It got so bad they were following her everywhere that she went that her dad actually sent her to Germany to live with her aunt and her grandma. Damn. Yeah. So she that's how she ended up in Germany. And it sounded like 
At one point, she wanted to come back, and he had written this letter to her aunt saying she needs to not come back. And she didn't know about this letter until after he had died. She found it she found it way later in life. So she found this letter and she realized that this would have been like an anniversary of her mother dying that she had talked about going back and she thought that maybe it was just too painful for him to have her there. Well, I've been talking about that with a lot of people is that when you look similar to somebody, like people have trouble dealing with you when you look like somebody like that. Like you look like mm-hmm. your mom a lot and then your mom dies. Mm-hmm. Like people, I know a bunch of people who have trouble with that in their own lives with different people because they look similar to somebody who's passed on. And Well, and not only that, but I think that her dad knew that it was better for her there. Yeah, that she could get a better education and a better everything without being haunted by this tragedy that everybody knew about, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's the story of Julian Kopke. And I just think it's freaking amazing that she survived for 11 days, was able to basically walk out of this jungle and do great things with her life. I mean, it's crazy. I can't imagine how that would feel to be the sole survivor of something like that. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Yeah, I literally cannot even imagine. Okay, small disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. We do pronounce it Julian, but it might be Julianne. It's spelled a little odd, though. Either way, we are sorry, and we do call her Julian the entire time. Yes. Apologies. Okay. So, thank you so much, everybody, for coming and listening. We're going to head over to our Bunker Talk and talk a little more about this case. If you are not a Patreon, you should consider signing up. It's lots of fun. There's lots of bonus materials on there, lots of bonus episodes if you need more to listen to or more to watch. We have lots of videos on there as well. Mm -hmm. So, come and support us over there. Okay, and we have some new Patreons this week. We have Lisa Frazier. Hi, Lisa. We have Taylor K. Hi, Taylor. Welcome to Patreon. And Sierra Williams? Sierra? Hopefully I am saying that right. Thank you so much for supporting us. We really, really appreciate you guys, and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much. All right. Thanks for tuning in, you guys, and we will see you next week. Bye.